one of the reasons I like to go hiking is hiking is like life. Oh, there's some beautiful scenery along the way, but there's also some tough climbs along the way. And uh, I don't know if you knew it, but hiking seems to be an essential part of being a disciple. So there is a hiking trip being organized by Pastor Ryan for um, coming up here in August. You want to know more about that? Put hiking on your communication card. Drop that in one of those offering boxes on the sides in the back here. And um, love to tell you more about that. But why do I say hiking is essential to being a disciple? Well, as the 12 followed Jesus... I don't know if you knew it, but they did a lot of hiking. There were no buses. There were no Uber. There were no cars, gas, or electric. Uh, They didn't trek around in a buggy either. No, they did a lot of hiking, a lot of walking. And what we enter today in Mark chapter 10 is one of their last and long hikes. They're traveling through what you and I would consider not the best of territory, kind of a wasteland. In fact, in the, in, the, in the picture here, that's why I've called this walking through a wasteland. You look at that kind of topography, and that's not where you would probably choose to hike. Well, the destination of this hike was not one that you would probably choose as well, but it was the Lord's destination of choice for us. But this is the kind of territory, and I like this because in the midst of the barrenness, in the midst of the up and downs, this is actually a scene from alongside the road between Jericho and and Jerusalem, which is the last part of the trek that is mentioned in John chapter 10, or rather Mark chapter 10. And on this trek, you can see there are ups and downs, there's, there's it's awful barren, isn't it? It's, it's kind of a wasteland. They are walking through a wasteland. First, as they trek from Galilee, at the start of the chapter, down through an area called Perea, which is on the eastern side of the Jordan River, what is now called Jordan today. And it's also very dry and arid. The rain, after the rain uh, stops coming east of the hills of, of, of Judea and around Jerusalem, it doesn't rain again until you get up in the highlands above the Jordan River Valley. So it's a very dry and arid and seemingly desolate area. And uh, yet, that's the kind of wasteland actually that we walk in. That's where we do our hiking in life. We are walking in a wasteland. Now it might look pretty. It might, it might look like a gorgeous trees and valleys and streams and rivers and lakes and mountains. But we walk through, we live in a broken and spiritually barren world. And things are not as they ought to be, even if they seem normal and even okay to us. Things are not at all okay in this world in which we live and as we walk through it. We're going to bump into that over and over again. And yet we're able to live by God's grace, even walking in a wasteland, in the midst of barrenness, fruitful and vital lives in His grace. As Jesus walked through these places with his disciples, he instructed them. A lot of the lessons that we read out of the Gospels occur along the way, on the road, as they went. And so are these. So in these last episodes of this this opportunity, Jesus is on his way from Galilee. Let me show you a map of of the territory that they're tracking through. They start up in Galilee, which would be further up north above that red line. They come down. You see on the east side of the Jordan River, actually what's in Jordan today. They come down to that area, which would be beyond the Jordan 
Jordan was a, actually a technical name. And that's where John the Baptist started his baptizing. That's probably the area on that side of the Jordan was where Jesus was baptized, on the eastern side. And, and it was there also perhaps that John was arrested. It's certainly in the Machaerus prison up on the hill just a little further south behind the Dead Sea where John the Baptist was imprisoned because he dared to challenge Herod concerning his divorce and marrying his brother's wife. John the Baptist is in prison there, and he's ultimately executed for it. And uh, so there now Jesus is, and, and Jesus and his disciples, they're going to cross over the Jordan River, nearly in the same area where 1,400 years ago Israel first entered this land. They're going to go to Jericho, and they're going to go by Jericho and follow that road that is on the front of your bulletin, that road going up from Jericho to Jerusalem. In the midst of that journey, Jesus is teaching his disciples and fitting this practical walking through a wasteland, walking in a wilderness, that we're going to be talking about this morning. He's dealing with some very practical, very down-to-earth, very where the sandal meets the road kind of realities. He's going to be giving, in a sense, final instructions because when he gets to Jerusalem, there will be a week left. He gets to Jerusalem, and with, within the week, he's going to be arrested, and the passion narrative starts. And so he's giving, really, this is the last opportunity for instructions in these very practical areas of marriage, children, wealth, and ambition. Things that all of us as humans are going to be dealing with and relating to as we walk through a wasteland. And oftentimes the things that Jesus has to say about these very central in life issues is going to be counterintuitive to us. It's going to be not quite what we would expect. We look at that maybe a little differently. And so I've, I've given some counterintuitive titles to these four segments, thinking about marriage. I've titled that Go Back to the Beginning. For children, think smaller. As far as wealth, stop trying. And in the area of ambition, aim lower. Those are the ways to actually succeed. Those are the ways to do well, to walk well in these areas. Marriage, children, wealth, ambition. So let's jump into it. Let's get into the first. And as we do, Father, would you open our eyes in your word? Lord, would you give us eyes to see? the things that are here, and how they relate to us, how they relate to, for some of us this morning, our own marriages, and how we can encourage others. Lord, how they relate to our own caring for our own children, our caring for other children, or other least ones around us. Lord, would you speak to us this morning about our own stewardship of our wealth, and what we think we bring to you. Father, would you speak to us about our vain ambitions and rather set before us your ambition for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Mark chapter 10, the opening verse gives us a, a brief description of that map I just showed you. They left there. They left Galilee. They left the area around Capernaum where they were in chapter 9. 
and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, the region called Perea. And the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And with that prison where John the Baptist was jailed and then executed, the Pharisees, with that in the background, up there on the hills behind, the Pharisees came up to Jesus in verse 2. And in order to test him, in order to lay a trap for him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, Well, what did Moses say? They said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So they're suggesting maybe John the Baptist was wrong. And they're eager to see what Jesus has to say. And Jesus said to them in verse 5, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. We'll pause there. Now, my purpose this morning, I'm going to disappoint some of you. I do not intend to try to sort out and work through all the scenarios of when divorce might happen and would that be a divorce that's allowed or that be a divorce that wouldn't be allowed. I'm not going to parse all those details. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of traps to fall into along the way there, isn't there? And that's exactly what the disciples were hoping for. No matter what Jesus said, he's going to divide himself from some of his own followers and he's probably going to come out on the wrong side of Herod as well. And he's in Herod's territory. If we can put Herod's target on his back, the Pharisees believe their problems will be over with. So that's not what we're going to spend our time on this morning. But it's an important question. What about divorce? What does God have to say about divorce? They're asking Jesus, is divorce okay? In a sense, there's a debate in the time about can divorce happen only in very limited circumstances or can divorce be for any reason whatsoever? And Jesus' response is a good one. They're trying to lay a trap on him. He says, well, let's, let's, let's uh, toss this one, let's deflect this one back to Moses. What did Moses say? What do you say to the Pharisees who value Moses? What do you say Moses says? And so they've thought about that. They're ready for that. They say, well, Moses allowed for a certificate of divorce. Moses allowed for this, in fact, to write, a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send his wife away. And Jesus corrects them. He said, well, that's in, that, that is in Deuteronomy 24. But that's because of the hardness of your heart that he wrote you that commandment. But from the beginning... From the beginning, there's more here. When you ask, what did Moses say, there's more to Jesus' question than just getting a quote from Moses, getting a quote from the first five books of the Torah. That, that what Jesus is doing is revealing something about his questioners. When you ask, what does God say about this or that, first of all, you go back to the book. We're looking for what does God say, not, not what does our culture say, what seems reasonable to us. But when you ask, what does God say about this or that or the other thing, are you looking for God's purpose or are you looking for what's permissible? 
Are we looking to press to the center or are we looking to get as close to the edges as we can with not somehow being disqualified? Are we wanting the heart of God's will or are we looking to find out what can I get away with? Because that doesn't necessarily tell us something about the issue. It tells us something about ourselves. Do I want to press closer to God, or I do, want, do I want to stay on those fringes? Not having to get too close, but not being disqualified. Not being cast out. You see, to have that mindset is actually to completely miss, to misunderstand what God's eternal life is all about. Deuteronomy 24, he says, it's a protection that Moses gives, which they have used for a pass. What do I mean it's a protection? Well, when a man would put his wife away, he would say, I don't want to be married to you. Leave. And he put his wife out of the home. She has nowhere to go. She can't be joined to another man because she would still be recognized as his wife, no matter what else he does. No other man could marry her and receive her in. And Moses is not advocating for divorce here, but he is. When divorce happens, there's a realistic. It's good to know Moses was a realist. Our God is a realist. He knows exactly what's wrong with us. He says the hardness of your heart. And as broken people in a broken world, that marriage covenant will also at times be broken. It's never a good thing when it does, but it will happen. And what Moses has done here in Deuteronomy 24, where they are quoting from this certificate of divorce, which is given to the wife, and it must be given to her, so that she, she is released from the bonds of that marriage, so that she can be taken in by another. She's not left homeless and on the streets. And they have used this as a pass. They have used God's grace as an opportunity to violate God's will, which is what Jesus next goes into. But from the beginning. He said, you told me something from Moses. You told me something from the end of Moses' writing in Deuteronomy that, that provided for the hardness of heart of God's people. But let's go back to the beginning of Moses. Let's go back to Genesis, in fact, chapter 2, where this whole thing about marriage began. In the beginning, he made them male and female. He made them unique. In the image of God created he them. And it was not good for the man to be alone, but he made a compliment for him so that the man would leave his father and mother and cleave or be joined to his wife and the two would become one. The two would be made one. The implication is made by who? The two are being made. The two are being made one by God himself. And so Jesus, showing us something about how even we handle the word, that these things written in Genesis, they are not some allegory. They're not some metaphor that we can interpret in any poetic, fanciful way that we want to. No, this is... The, the words mean what the words mean. So there's a logical conclusion that can be drawn from that. The two are made one. They have been made one by God himself. So he says the conclusion is what God has joined together. Who is man to separate? That's God's intention for marriage. That's what God has intended marriage to be. Biblical marriage is not a contract of convenience that we have created. It's a covenant 
of commitment given to us by the Creator Himself. Where God Himself is joining the two together. Marriage that differs from God's original intent is not an alternative. It's a cheap imitation. It's a marriage knockoff. It doesn't have the same value. It cannot provide the same blessing. The culture around us may approve of no-fault divorce. You see, we often get confused and think only recently has marriage been redefined. Marriage was redefined in our society a long time ago. Our culture may be okay with no-fault divorce, but just because we have something called no-fault divorce doesn't mean that God doesn't find fault with it. He might not be okay with it at all. Our culture tells us, but, but, but I need to be true to me. That's a very selfish expression. It's got nothing to do with marriage. Because marriage is about I need to be true to you. I need to be true to the other. There's a commitment of one devoting and giving of themselves for the other, of God joining together. There's something in that that we, we live out in our being true to one another that parallels because our marriage relationship is meant to parallel and teach us something about our relationship with God. We see that fleshed out in Ephesians chapter 5. So that something about my devotion to another is meant to show us something about God's covenant devotion to us. And therefore, it shouldn't be torn apart. It shouldn't be ended. But if you ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. They ask the question, is it okay to divorce? What circumstances can we divorce when they ought to be asking, how do we stay married? This is what God has given us. This is what God has provided. This is what God has called good before the fall. How much more after? How much more needed? And yet, how much more help do we need? How can I stay married? We model God's gracious humility in his gift of marriage. Ephesians 5 describes it that way. It describes it of submitting yourselves to one another. It describes it as the husband loves the wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. A completely devoted, not to being true to me, but giving myself for her. And for the wife to respect her husband, to yield in respect in ways that have nothing to do with equality or who's more important, but has everything to do with showing something about how even in the Godhead, between the Father and Jesus, there is this love and respect. And between God and humanity, God so loved the world that he gave, that Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death, in order, not being true to himself, but denying himself, in order to lift us for our good. And that plays out between one another in marriage in ways that we experience in an experiential manner something of God's care for us. And so as we yield, as we respect, as we, as we love and give ourselves for the other, we're careful then not to let other priorities like work crowd in and get in the way of that covenant. That marriage is going to, between fallen and hardened human hearts, is going to take mercy and grace. 
It's going to be a place where you will also experience forgiveness and acceptance when you don't deserve to be accepted, and yet you're accepted anyway. And it's not because you're, you're, you're worked up enough or polished up enough or prettied enough or, or, or decked out and, and such that you will be accepted, but you are accepted and embraced and received and forgiven freely. Because of a covenant that you've made to one another. And that is the covenant that God has made with us. That we're not accepted because we work ourselves up to being worth enough for him. But rather he has committed by covenant himself to us. For our good and to lift us. As we do that for another. You see, initially, I was taught by by an elderly man years ago. Even before I was married, I heard him say this, and it stuck with me. He said, when I first met her, and they were teens at the time, when I first met her, I told her, I love you. But when he said, as a young man, I love you, he said, you know what I really meant? I want you for me. But along the way, in commitment of marriage, in what it's supposed to be, I want you for me grows into you before me. That I give myself rather for you. I put you before me. The object of my desire becomes the one whom I desire to care for and cherish and lift and be a help and a blessing to rather than to use for my own benefit and enjoyment. To be sure, marriages do break because of hardened hearts that aren't able to get past that self-serving me before you. And anyone here in this room that experiences that, you've experienced that perhaps like me among your family, within, with your parents maybe. Maybe you've experienced it yourself. You know it's wrong. You know that it wasn't supposed to be like that. And so the Lord here, as he exchanges with these Pharisees who are looking to assign either permission or blame, maybe to lay guilt, that's not God's purpose. Our God is a God who in every area of our need He knows our brokenness. He knows our hardness. And yet he responds with a provision of his grace. And he lifts us back to that within marriage and within relationships that we can live out of his love for us toward one another. That caring for others rather than for myself, is played out in the next episode that, that, that he moves into. If we jump ahead a little bit to, to touch on each of these. In the next section concerning children, verse 13, they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. You know, Jesus isn't indignant with his disciples very often. Well, maybe with Peter. Maybe with Bob. But not very often do we find that. But Jesus was indignant. This this ticked him off. 
The, the people are bringing children to Jesus. They want Jesus to hold them, to, to touch them, to, to bless them. And the disciples are like, don't bother the rabbi. Don't bother the, the teacher with that. Don't you know who he is? He's important. He doesn't have time for children. Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. He took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands upon them. Jesus takes time to receive children. He, embr- he embraces and blesses them as the Father blesses. Now to understand this, this little picture, you've, you've got to understand that Children were not esteemed in ancient Jewish culture the same way they are in the West today. In the West, we value the, um, the a tenderness toward children. That's a virtue. That's why if a nonprofit organization wants to raise money, what do they do? They show you pictures of children in need. We are caring for this children. That's a, this child. That's a value. That's important. And, and oh, you'll jump in on that. That... that um, uh, politicians used to be said would, would shake hands and kiss babies. That's what it took. Out on the street, shaking hands and kissing babies. Well, that was a year ago. You probably don't want them shaking hands. You certainly don't want them kissing your babies anymore, right? Uh, you probably don't want some of these people anywhere near your children. I don't blame you. But in ancient Jewish society, it was different. That they did not regard children, especially young children, with that kind of general tender affection. Sons, indeed, were regarded as a blessing because sons were the ones that would carry on the family name. If there were no sons, then the inheritance would fall to the daughters. But, but th- largely that was concerned of adult children continuing the family for another generation. And certainly, children, when they grew up enough to be helpful and useful, they, they could, could increase the family workforce. Whether it's a small family farm or a larger family business. So children were needed in that way. But when they're young and they can't contribute, when they're in diapers and they're toddlers and they're just young ones breaking things, they're not a lot of help. They are not useful. They are an additional burden. They are more mouths to feed for the family. That was the first century estimation of children. Children are a, were often viewed as a needy nuisance until they were old enough to be useful. That's kind of different for us to wrap our minds about that. In this story then, these children coming to Jesus are not blessed because of their virtues and their sweet childlike innocence that anybody who has two-year-olds knows isn't true at all. But, but they, they are blessed because of their need and their obvious need. They come only as they are. They have an urgent, needy dependency. Anybody that has heard a hungry baby cry knows that. Maybe one of the young ones in the, here in the body could have given us one of those just now. It would have been great timing. But that ur- urgent, needy dependence doesn't add anything, but must be cared for. It, they need To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as a person who has no credits, who has no clouts, who has no claim, only this needy dependency. One who receives it as a child receives by grace on the basis of that neediness rather than of any merit inherent in themselves. I love the old gospel song, Nothing in my hand I bring, 
Simply to the cross I cling. I am in need. I have nothing to give for it. I must be provided for. That's the gospel. And Jesus lays down his life for us to provide for us. It's, it's been said that little children are a paradigm. They are the pattern for disciples. For it is only empty hands that can be filled. The next story that we're going to be getting into is going to show us that. But first, Jesus takes time. In verse 16, Jesus takes time for the children. He has room for them. He'll push other things out of the way in order to make this a priority, even if it slows down the the other things of the day. And so should we. Take time for children, even if it slows down, even if it gets in the way, slows you from your goals. Maybe caring for your own children, but maybe also caring for children within a church family. We think of things like the Iwana ministry where over the years leaders come alongside parents and together there's the encouragement of of taking God's word and investing it into your heart and living it in life. To, 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 To labor in Sunday school for fruit that you will not see for years if you're both together in the same place in the future to see it at all. To do something like a VBC where kids come from we don't even know where. And we have them for a week. And we get the opportunity to share the gospel into those lives and into their families. Maybe even because children matter, we'll care about what goes on more broadly in our community. What happens out there with schools and public schools? Maybe your children are no longer in public school, but we still care what happens there because children matter. Maybe you'd never send your kids to a public school anymore, but we care what happens there because those children also matter to our God, to our Savior. We'll take time. On the other hand, contrary to this coming with open hands, is coming with some, some, coming with something to contribute, and coming to the to the Lord with with the expectation that I can do that which is required. And to this one who doesn't come like a child but wants to enter the kingdom, this is the one that Jesus has to tell, "Stop trying." This is the rich young man who runs up to Jesus next in verse seventeen. As he was setting out on his journey, perhaps from the eastern side now coming towards Jericho, there are a couple of large towns in that area, and then from there he's going to move across the river and then up towards Jerusalem. As he was setting out on the journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not, on, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to, the, to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept even from my youth, maybe from his bar mitzvah, from when he was 13 years old and became a son of the covenant. All these things I have done. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. He knows that this man has been observant. He knows that he's been following God's law to the best that he can. Or so he would say. And Jesus said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, 
And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now what's going on there? Is this, is, is this a lesson that it takes, in fact, poverty to enter the kingdom? What is happening here? This man, initially, he runs up and he kneels. Now, a man of social standing and position, like a rich young ruler, would not run in this society. We learn that from the prodigal son as well. When the father runs down the road to meet and embrace his son, the, the father is humiliating himself in the, in, in, in the process. That somebody of, of standing and position doesn't run to anybody. Other people run to them or run for them, but they do not run. That would be beneath the dignity of their position. But this man runs to Jesus. And he kneels before him. There is an evident, genuine humility here. He sees eternal life as something he should be able to obtain if only he knew how. If only he knows what are the things that I must do. I'll, I'll rally my resources. I will buckle down. I'll try even harder. I'll do even more. What is it that it takes? What's on the list? And Jesus asks him, why do you call me good? And he goes on to explain that question. No one is good but God alone. Is the, is, the young, is, is, is the rich young man inadvertently actually thinking that Jesus is God because only God is good? I don't think that's it. I don't think that's in his mind. Rather, Jesus is questioning why he would call Jesus good, which actually he could do, because no man is good, only God is good. The implication being that the man himself, the rich young man, cannot be good. All it takes to be good with God is to be good. All it takes to be in good relationship with God is to be good, to be innocent, to be perfect. And the man surely does not think he can be perfect, but he expects that he can be good enough. But good enough is not good enough. For the kingdom of heaven. He must be good. And no man can. So what does Jesus tell him to do? It's only when a man comes as a needy child that he can possess God's gift. And that's what this man needs to know. He needs to come with empty hands. And so Jesus, Jesus gets to the point of where his confidence is. Where his safety and security is. And what he is lacking and he tells them, take all that you have and sell it and give it to the poor and then come follow me. You know what he's doing in those two statements? Give it away to the poor and you come follow me. His, he is summarizing all of the law, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, follow me, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You have resources that could be of great help to many of your poor neighbors. So you sell what you've got and you care for them, love them if you want to know what God requires. And he can't do it. He can't do it. Remember when I said you ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer? He, he, he came asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he should have been asking, what must you do for me that I could receive eternal life? Because that's really the point. He goes away 
because he can't give it all away. He can't get there. He's not willing to do that. He's not able to empty his own hands and to come by faith, which I love the acronym for faith, forsaking all I trust him. He's not able to forsake it all. He holds on to it. And Jesus' response is, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He has other things he trusts in. He said, in fact, it's, it's, it's easier for a camel, and this is a literal big, fat, stinky camel, to go through the eye of a needle, and I mean a literal sewing needle. Maybe it's a canvas tent sewing needle. Those are bigger than the fine sewing needles. But still, camel, big stinky camel, does not fit through the eye of any needle ever made. We're talking, not talking about some difficult, narrow, skinny gate that was called the eye of a needle because it was so small. There was no such thing. Jesus is saying it's impossible. How do we know that? Because he goes on to say that. Now, the disciples are surprised. It's, it's, it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. How can that be? Why? Because a person who has wealth obviously has been blessed by God. This must be somebody who is, because they're blessed by God, God has prospered them. They must be in God's good books. They must have God's favor upon them. Certainly they are closer on their way to the kingdom than the rest of us. And that's not so. Jesus, if, if it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, the disciples say, well, if, a rich, if, if wealthy people, prosperous people don't get in, then who can be saved? And Jesus gives what first sounds like bad news. It's impossible with man. It's impossible. They ask the most important question, then who can be saved? Verse 26, and Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but. But not with God. Not with God. That's why I said the man should have been asking, what will you do for me? Because it's not impossible with God, for all things are possible with God. Such that any sacrifice you make, as the disciples go on to ask about, any sacrifice that you make, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus because of all that he has done for us. And as Paul describes, I has not seen nor his ear heard, nor can we even possibly imagine all that God has prepared for those who love him. All that God has done for us in saving us in Jesus, in paying for our guilt in Jesus' death, in raising us up with Jesus in his resurrection, in seating us already in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in all the future and eternity, holding up us as trophies of his grace, demonstrating his grace and his mercy toward us before all the rest of his creation. That's what God has done for us in Jesus. What you think you give up, sacrifice, what it costs, as you follow him on this road through a wasteland toward sacrifice, the things that we think we give up will be more than richly repaid, not only now, Jesus says, in this life, in experiencing his grace, but also in the kingdom, of come, the kingdom to come. But many who would be first will be last. 
And many who are last will be first. Many, like the wealthy ruler who you think already is experiencing the fullness of God's blessing, is actually going to come in last. And these mere fishermen are going to be the ones, uneducated as they are, who are greatly used by God in his kingdom. The first will be last, the last will be first. And that transition ends into the last section concerning our ambition where Jesus says, aim lower. And so if I jump ahead now to verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. Jesus reminds him, them as they're following. They're following. He is headed to Jerusalem. They know Jerusalem is dangerous. They know Jerusalem is not a safe place for Jesus these days. In fact, earlier in another trip, just as far as Bethany, which is two miles from Jerusalem, when Jesus was determined to go, one of his disciples says, well, let's go and die with him. They expect it. Jesus gets close to Jerusalem and they're going to kill him. And so Jesus lays it out for them. This is exactly what's going to happen. The Son of Man is going to lay his, his life down. He is going to be humiliated. He's going to be spit upon. He's going to be flogged. He is going to be crucified. And he is going to rise from the dead. They are following him. And they're astonished that he is so determined to go. And they themselves are afraid. But did you notice that as they're afraid, that they're expecting that with him, they likely will die with him. And Jesus tells them, Jesus tells them in those words that the Son of Man will be delivered over. They will condemn Him. They will mock Him. They will spit on Him. They will flog Him. And they will kill Him. Not them. They're with Him, but He will die for them. That's what he's reminding of him. He's the one that's going to die. But in the midst of that and pointing to that a resurrection and a kingdom, their thoughts and ambitions easily go off to seed again. And so James and John come up to him just after this, the way that Mark has arranged it, and they say, you know, teacher, we, 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 we want to ask you to do something for us, whatever it is that we're going to ask you. Will you do it? You ever done that with God? Say, God, would you please do what I want you to do? Sign this blank check and say it's okay. Oh, that's a lot of chutzpah. Well, Jesus says, well, what do you ask me for? And they said, well, in your kingdom, you know, after the whole mocking and flogging and spitting and, 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 and dying, after all that and the resurrection and the kingdom, could we sit on your right hand and on your left? Could we be the ones that are exalted there with you above all these other blokes? And, well, there's more to the story there, but if we think about it, they want to be first. You know, even in serving, Jesus, Jesus presses them on that. Are they really able? And they say, oh, yeah, are you able, he says, to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? I say, we are able. <laughs> well, they don't know. That, will, that is in their future, and they are not yet able for it. They are not yet ready for it. Peter is not yet ready for it. We're going to see that play out in the future. But, but despite that, Despite that, they want to be first. And Jesus said the first will be last. They want to be first even in serving. 
as these are. These are not the Pharisees here. These are his disciples. In following and in serving, still there is the tendency within us in our ambition to desire recognition. Do you have that trouble ever? I, I think back to when it was clear to, to me that God was calling me to transition from mission leadership into pastoral ministry and I was going to be going back to seminary and I was choosing which seminary to go and I, and I wrestled with this. Really the choice was obvious. In the circles that I had been in, the church circles that I was in, the school that was considered the best school, the school that you should go to, that's the one. It was considered this grand evangelical mecca. This was the place to go, if you at all possibly could. It was Dallas Theological Seminary. That's where I wanted to go. I could be Bob, who went to Dallas Theological Seminary. And all the recognition and esteem of that place in my circles would then be connected to me. And yet I knew me. And I kept looking. In fact, Julie and I would joke about the seminary of the week for a while because I kept looking for another school. No, I'm going to go to that one instead. I'm going to go to that one instead because I knew me and I knew that I wanted that assumed glory if I went to the right school. Well, I ended up, after confronting, dealing with a little bit of that ugly ambition in my own heart, still, for the education that I could get there, I did have the opportunity to go to that particular school. And when I came here, Brush Prairie was looking for a pastor. And here came Bob, who went to Dallas Theological Seminary. And the search committee asked, now, Dallas Seminary, is that anything like Western? <laughs> you know, I found along the way, nobody cares. You know, I worked hard. I got grades. The prophets always said, you know, some of you, you, you have family, you have children. You shouldn't be working so hard to get grades. Don't worry about the grades. And yet they always gave grades. I noticed that. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I worked hard and I graduated. I, was, I, I, I crammed more into less time. And yet still I graduated. Some come loudly. <laughs> and yet nobody cared. Nobody asked me. I came to the church before the church, com the church committee, and then we had this question and answer with all the church. Nobody asked me, well, what was your GPA? You know, how many A's did you get? I wanted recognition, but nobody cared about, rightly so. Now, 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 giving yourself to learning, like Amanda demonstrated to us, doing the hard work, it does matter, but not for our own recognition but that it would do its work in us that others would see him through us. That's what matters. Paul didn't care what anybody else had to say about him except what they saw in him. And I remember the words of those who came to Jesus, the disciples, and they said, Sirs, we want to see Jesus. That's who they need to see from us. And so, this section closes. 
concerning our own ambition and the, the things that the, these two wanted for themselves above the others, and that caused certainly conflict among the others as well, and it will in our serving today as well. But Jesus calls them, and he says, you know this is the world's way. This is the way of the nations. This is how the Gentiles do it, and their rulers lord it over them. But it will not be so among you. For verse 44, whoever would be first among you must be the servant of all. Why? Because, 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served. The Son of Man, that grand messianic figure out of the prophet Daniel, the one who would take all the kingdoms of this world and he would make them the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and he will reign forever. That Son of Man, even that Son of Man came not to be served not to rule over, but to serve and to give his life for others. And those that are going to follow him to Jerusalem are going to need to do the same. Those that are going to follow him in the wasteland of this wilderness are going to have to do the same thing. And you say, but how can we? We know the hardness of our own hearts. We know the stubbornness of ambition within us. We know how easily we cling to other confidences and things we trust in instead. And how can we empty our hands and come needy as children and help other people do the same? That's the very last episode in the story. It's blind Bartimaeus who says to this same son of David, he says, son of David, Have mercy on me. I want to see. Oh, that we would see. That we would see our marriages and our other relationships as as the, the, the framework in which we give ourselves away for others rather than seek to use others for ourselves. That we would come as needy children and thus be willing to embrace and receive others in need as well. That we would stop trying so hard ourselves and trust our own ambitions. That we would see what he has done for us. And so we would follow him in giving ourselves away so that others could know Jesus. Father, like Bartimaeus, help us to see Father, from each of these stories, as Jesus took these opportunities and and encounters with others, but these were times that he taught his own. And Lord, would you use those same episodes then to teach us as we would seek to follow our Lord Jesus. As we would seek as well to be your disciples, to faithfully follow you. Father, would you open our eyes. Help us to see our Lord Jesus. Help us to see this covenant of life that you have made with us, that we are secure in you, that you would never put us away. No matter the experience of life and how life has beaten us up and pushed us down and taught us otherwise, no matter how life has rejected us, Lord, that in Jesus you never will. You have made that covenant with us in him. And Father, that when we come needy before us, you have time. You receive us. You will bless us that we need nothing in our own hands, 
We have no other confidence except your mercy and your grace. And because of what you've done for us, we will give ourselves away. Father, help us to put a stake in the ground today. Lord, Lord, help us make a mark on our own math in this map, in this walk through life with you. That in this, I will trust my God and my Savior. I will not fret about my need because I am his child. And if I'm not sure about that, Lord, today, would you, would you help one to be very clear that they need bring nothing to you to qualify except the simple childlike trust that Jesus died for me. God, I believe you about Jesus and eternal life in his name rather than my own efforts. Lord, make us clear on that that we would gratefully follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.